Donald Trump called him tough. Rush Limbaugh read one of his articles live on his radio show. Ann Coulter tweeted that article to her one and a half million followers and declared, every sentence is perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, former chief editor of the Jewish Press, Elliot Resnick. It's been a hundred years since a Speaker of the House has failed to be elected on the first ballot. Over the last two days, Congress has voted for Speaker six times, and six times Kevin McCarthy has failed to secure the necessary number of Republican votes to become Nancy Pelosi's successor. Twenty conservative Republicans, led by Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert, refused to vote for McCarthy until they secure certain concessions from him. But McCarthy is evidently unwilling to play ball. Meanwhile, conservative commentators are sharply divided on this fight, with some supporting McCarthy and others supporting the Republican rebels. I've actually never seen anything quite like it, and decided to postpone the interview I had planned on releasing this week so that I could talk about the speaker race. It's now 9.30 p.m. on Wednesday night, and I'm here with Gavin Wax, a no-holds-barred conservative who serves as president of the New York Young Republican Club and ambassador for Turning Point USA and Live Action. He has appeared on such news outlets as Fox News, Newsmax, and One America News, and has been published in places like American Greatness, American Thinker, and The Daily Caller. Gavin, let's get right to it. You oppose McCarthy becoming Speaker. Why? First and foremost, his job performance. He failed electorally. Uh, this was the, we were on the cusp of a generational realignment in this country. Most, you know, predictions had us gaining an upwards of 70 seats in the House. Uh, and he failed miserably to deliver a sizable majority. They simply did not bring home the wins. Uh, and why didn't they? Well, they wasted tons of time, money, and resources trying to influence primaries against candidates they didn't like who wouldn't be lapdogs to the establishment. So they blew millions of dollars against solid America First candidates in the primaries. And in many cases uh, where they were able to survive those attacks, they then abandoned them in the general election and didn't support them financially, allowing Democrats to win many of these seats. And if you look at a lot of the disparity in fundraising and spending uh, between the parties, it's those disparities we saw that really cost us many of these seats. Uh, and then in addition, many of the, the candidates that he supported in the primaries went on to the generals and were weak candidates and didn't win either. So he failed on that front miserably. Another important job of leadership is whipping votes. And he clearly has not been able to whip those votes necessary to become a speaker. And even before he was aiming for speaker, when he was simply the minority leader, he wasn't able to whip votes to have a united Republican House conference. You saw many dissenters break for things like the infrastructure bill, break for gun control, break for the omnibus, break for a whole litany of Democrat legislation, giving the Biden administration and Nancy Pelosi many legislative wins. Well, the job of a leader is to make sure the votes are whipped and we vote united. And he has he wasn't able to do that as minority leader, and he isn't able to do it now trying to get his speakership. So he has failed from being a good whipper of votes, and he's failed from an electoral standpoint. He's also failed to deliver uh, on any sort of compromises and needed reforms. Uh, he has blocked many rules changes. He's only made last minute paltry concessions when he thought his job was on the line or he would be embarrassed. Uh, but for months, he was denying that he would push through any needed transparency and other uh, needed reforms in the House, which many conservatives uh, on both sides of the leadership debate were calling for. Uh, and he's clearly opposed to advancing an America first agenda were he to become speaker. I think it would be business as usual. He's bought and owned by the lobbyists in D.C. That's the entirety of his
his career. And if we were to take a trifecta government again, come 2024, I think he would govern no differently than Paul Ryan did as Speaker of the House during the first two years of Trump's administration, which was largely a disappointment in terms of the amount of legislation we put through and what we could have potentially put through, given that we had full control of government. So I think we should demand more. I think we should raise the standard. I think there's plenty of people in the House conference who could rise to the occasion, who could be a better alternative, who could be a unifier, who could agree to make the concessions, reforms, and and negotiate uh, to really bring the the party together. I don't believe that's Kevin McCarthy. He's shown himself incapable of doing so, and he's going to continue to embarrass himself doing so because all that's needed is five Republican dissenters to block him from moving forward. And the Democrats are clear that they are going to oppose him at every turn as well and vote in lockstep. Uh, So they're really in a conundrum right now. And I think we should find an alternative. And even if that alternative is not necessarily all that much better ideologically than McCarthy, I think it's very important from a precedent standpoint that we show that leadership can be removed and there are consequences for a bad job performance, for bad electoral results, and for going against the base. And I think we need to break the Mick leadership triumvirate of the Republican Party. And if that comes in the form of Kevin McCarthy, then great. I think that'll set precedent for the future and it will show any future majority leader, minority leader, speaker, etc., that if you are not going to work with the base and work with conservatives and push a true conservative America first agenda, it will cost you, your titles and your prestige and all that. It's hard to know sometimes whom to trust, but Matt Gates and others have said there's a list of like three or four things they demanded from McCarthy. One was to vote on a certain border plan put forth by a certain local Texas Republican group. Another was to vote on a balanced budget. Another was to vote on term limits for congressmen. He said, this is what we were asking for. And McCarthy won't say yes. Now, McCarthy The fact that he won't give in on these demands makes me all the more suspicious of him. And he's not even denying that that's what's taking place, meaning it's possible Gates is making up a story. But I haven't heard McCarthy get up there and say, no, this is not true. I'd be happy to put these items on the agenda. So why isn't he giving in on these very sensible items? To me, it makes it even more suspicious. You make a great point. I mean, he hasn't denied them and he hasn't talked about them at all. And it just goes to show that he's really not willing to negotiate or make concessions. He was only beginning to do so towards the tail end, right before this came to a vote because he realized he was actually in trouble because he was so arrogant, but he hasn't moved on these issues and he hasn't even denied what Gates and others are saying. And they seem very willing to potentially make a unity government with the Democrats rather than negotiate with their fellow Republicans and fellow supposed conservatives. So I think that tells you everything, the fact that they're making these threats that they'll go and work with the Dems to create some kind of moderate unity government, or the fact that they're even even willing to give it to the Democrats and make Hakeem Jeffries the speaker. I think all these things just show that they're really being very disingenuous. This is about power and they don't want to make any real concessions and they're not negotiating in good faith. And I think this just shows that the 20 that have boldly stood up to oppose him in his speakership bid are uh, fighting the good fight and have uh, the moral high ground here because McCarthy is not being genuine. He's not being truthful. He's not being straightforward. He's playing games and he should come to the table and and negotiate in, in good faith. But I think at this point it's past that. I think he's burnt so many bridges and I do think there is a personality component to it now. There's just simply a lack of trust. And I think his ego is getting in the way and he refuses Uh, to give up what he thinks was promised to him, what he thinks he was owed. But I haven't heard any argument for him from the other side. I mean, what is the argument for him? They're saying, oh, we took back the House. Yeah, we took back the House just barely, almost uh, in in spite of his efforts, if anything. Um, But we should have much higher standards than simply being the minority leader when we took back the House. Uh, We should have had a much bigger majority. Uh, We should have been able to hold the line against 
Biden for the first two years of his administration. We didn't. We had many people break ranks and vote with Biden and his agenda. And that was under McCarthy's leadership. So he has no track record to speak of. He has nothing to point to that would show that he is speaker material. And uh, he refuses to negotiate and compromise and come to an agreement. I mean, these are also traits of a good leader, being able to manage a 200 plus member conference. And he's not able to do that right now. What leads anyone to believe he'll be able to do it were he to become speaker? Right. And some people are saying, well, if our side, you know, the rebel side wins, then there might be a disaster, a doomsday scenario. Maybe even Jeffries will be Speaker of the House. And as far as I'm concerned, look, winning the House, the main thing is that you now have the votes. We have the votes to kill any Democratic legislation. It's very nice if we could have some committee investigations on Fauci and Hunter Biden. That's all icing on the cake. That's not the main function of what Congress is there for. We have the votes to defeat Democratic legislation no matter what happens. So I don't understand these people who are offering this doomsday scenario. If we don't get behind McCarthy, oh my gosh, something terrible is going to happen. What's the worst that could happen? I, I don't get it. The only way we get a Hakeem Jeffries speakership is if the McCarthy faction breaks for Democrats or they break for either Hakeem or someone else. But as of now, this cycle is going to repeat and he's going to keep embarrassing himself. He's going to keep losing votes uh, and he's going to keep shredding, uh, shedding support until someone, what I think is going to happen, most likely um, someone else in leadership, you know, a Scalise, a Stefanik, a who knows who, uh, an Emmer may just come and stab him in the back and split up his support because people are giving him you know, a lot of support right now through many cycles of this, but I don't think they're going to have the stomach to have this keep going on any further. The Democrats are looking to vote in a block. Their Hakeem Jeffries are bust. I think they're taking the play like this is just embarrassing for the Republicans, so we'd rather see it continue. That's why they were voting against the motion to adjourn this evening. And I think as long as the 20 and growing uh, number of dissenters continue to make their stand, I think this is going to continue until the conference has enough and pushes out McCarthy. And I think, uh, you know, if you even look at the betting markets, McCarthy's odds are tanking. So I I don't even think we're in a situation right now where we're ever going to see a Speaker McCarthy. You know, we could get another establishment speaker and people will argue, well, what's the point in that? And I would say, listen, I think there is a good point in that. One, I think, again, it sets precedence that potential speakers can be, you know, dethroned or prevented from attaining their throne uh, if they don't work and compromise with the conservatives. And two, I think whoever becomes speaker in that scenario is going to have to come to the table and agree to concessions that the conservatives and the Freedom Caucus are demanding and demanding rightfully so, which are all basic principles and policy views of the Republican Party. They should not be controversial. You know, having time to read bills, having bills that are only of one item rather than these massive bills with all these unrelated things. I, I think these are common sense reforms. And the fact that the establishment refuses to even discuss them shows that they want to keep Washington business as usual, and they have no interest in governing in a conservative or America first agenda. So I think it's great that they're being called out and we're making them sweat a bit. Usually when there are fights in the Republican Party, it's between the base, the conservatives, and the, the rhinos, the establishment. In this time, I've never really seen before such a split in the conservative movement. I mean, you have, I'll just list some names, but there are many more. Katrina Pearson, Mike Huckabee, Mark Levin, Marjorie Taylor Greene in Congress. There are a lot of people who normally we consider hardcore, red-blooded conservatives on the McCarthy side. What do you make of that? I think they're showing their true colors. I think they're showing how naive they are and how they've bought into the the narrative and the party line. And I think they're not really, I think some of them are just, you know, maybe being taken advantage of. I think others are more complicit. Um, And I think there is a big chunk of uh, con ink that controls a lot of conservative institutions and media that are completely bought and paid for 
by the establishment and uh, are content to be token opposition and are content to sabotage our movement's full potential. And I think, you know, the people we are seeing fighting back are actually doing, you know, what their mandate is, is to fight back for their constituents, for the American people, for the Constitution, for our way of life. And I give them all the praise in the world because they're taking a very bold stance that's costing them a lot. They're getting hit left, right, and center. They've been threatened, you know, with losing their committees and all sorts of retribution. Uh, And they're putting that all on the line. They're actually making a real tangible sacrifice for the greater good. And the people on the opposite end, they're, they're not sacrificing anything. I mean, all they can talk about is, oh, we need to get a speaker so we can start voting for more aid to Ukraine and we can start voting for more omnibus bills and we can start voting for more uh, ridiculous things because they were all content to work with the Democrats, but they're less content to work with fellow Republicans. Again, I think that tells you everything you need to know about this group. And I think it's a sad state of affairs for our party and our ideological movement. You're a fighter in general, and you've spoken publicly about a more fighting type Republican Party in the future. What would you like to see happen in the next two years, like one or two or three items that you would like the Republican Party or conservatives to be fighting for and how they should be fighting in the next two years? I mean, it's uh, it's a big question. It's uh, There's a lot. I mean, I don't even know where to begin. I mean, I think we just need a definite tone change. I mean, we, I think we need to start operating politically in many ways like leftists. I think a lot of the tactics of the left are ideologically neutral, but they are tactics that are geared towards acquiring and retaining power. And I think that's what the art of politics fundamentally comes down to. And I think the left understands that and the right is naive and foolish and historically illiterate and doesn't get that. I mean, I think we need to basically throw the kitchen sink at the left and our own enemies on the right. And we need to consolidate power. And how do we do that? Well, we have to be ferocious. We need people that are not going to be cutting deals with the left, like McCarthy has done. We need people who are willing to use all the available electoral tools tools at our disposal, whether it is ballot harvesting, whether it is early voting, whether it is mail-in ballots, you name it. I mean, I think we need to take an all-of-the-above approach, and we need to fundamentally change how we approach politics, and we need to stop trying to take the higher ground, so to speak, and we need to roll up our sleeves and get dirty. And uh, I think this comes in a rhetorical form. I think this comes in an electoral form. I think this comes uh, in the form of how we approach things ideologically. I think it's very multifaceted, but I think right now and and historically, the Republican Party has been extremely weak. They've been very uh, open to conceding ground to the left, ceding the narrative, allowing them to frame all of current events. And when we're in power, we don't wield power effectively. And we need to be a party and a movement that isn't afraid to wield government to enable and advance our own ends and policy objectives. That's what the left does. So, you know, maybe sometimes it's not going to take the form of limited government. Maybe sometimes it doesn't, you know, fully align with these um, you know, sort of dated free market capitalist principles. But I fully believe that if we were to take power, we need to wield that power to solidify control and to solidify a Republican conservative government for the next generation or so and to turn this country around. Otherwise, uh, we are going to continue to partake in this kabuki theater, which is nothing more than a um, a cover-up for the managed decline of our country, which has been continuing under both parties, which is why many people point to this being essentially a battle between the Uni Party and these freedom fighters, like in the House Freedom Caucus. And I agree with those views. So that's really the fight we're up against. And I think those are some of the broader changes we need to make as a party, as a movement, if we're really going to start winning again. To your point, I often say that we you're talking about mostly federal government, but let's say on the state government level, the left has no problem defying federal law. So two huge examples are marijuana and immigration. 
According to federal law, you may not smoke marijuana. And New York, California, Colorado, they all say we couldn't care less what federal law says. We're allowing it anyways. Immigration, you may not harbor illegal immigrants. New York, California, other states say we couldn't care less what federal law says. We're going to do it anyways. On our side, gay marriage, we were fighting for this for like five, ten years. The second the Supreme Court said it's officially in the Constitution, which in itself is absurd. Obviously, Madison and Jefferson were not talking about gay marriage in the Constitution. But the second that Supreme Court ruling came down, everyone said, okay, the fight's up. Everything's over. Right. And only one judge in Alabama, Roy Moore, said, I couldn't care less what federal law says. I'm going to defy it. Right. We, we, don't, we don't play like the last place. Right. We need nullification. You know, they want sanctuary cities. Let's get our own equivalent on the right where we start, you know, engaging in Republican trifecta states to start, you know, building border walls, deporting people, you know, using the full power of the state government to our advantage. And I think to a degree, we're starting to see that. We're starting to see moves at the state level. You know, DeSantis has been leading the way in many respects, and we're seeing changes uh, in different parts of the country. But, uh, you know, for a long time, Republicans have had a massive advantage at the state level, at state legislatures, in the governor mansions. And a lot of these deep Republican states, these deep red states, where they've had trifecta governments now, they don't really do much. They're, they're not really in instituting a legislative and policy agenda that's really going to transform their state, which is why many people are apathetic about Republicans taking over at the federal level, because it's like, well, what have you done at the state level with all the power you have? Not much. Uh, so there's a lot we can do. And again, I think this is where we can look to the left, look to their brazen tactics and how they flout federal law. Okay, they, if they're going to do it, then we should do it. I mean, we should nullify. We should nullify unconstitutional laws. We should you know, institute policies and directives and, and, and programs at the state level that can accomplish our policy objectives without the need of federal government control. You know, you want to go after big tech, go after it at the state level. You know, some of these states are very large markets for big tech, start instituting rules and legislation against them. Uh, you know, things can be can, things can be done at the at the at the state level. Obviously, the, the the retort is going to be, oh, well, the courts are all dominated by the left and will never win. And I think, yes, that's a good point. It's a problem. But we just got to start fighting. And I think, you know, starting that fight, even if we're going to lose and have some setbacks, is a lot more worthwhile than not starting that fight at all. And it's also going to show a level of seriousness that will carry itself over into the federal level uh, in terms of all these fights ahead. Right. And even about the court, I think it was, I hate to quote Stalin, but I think it was Stalin who once said regarding something that the Vatican said, opposing him, he said, well, how many troops does the Pope have? Well, how many troops does the judge have? I mean, at the end of the day, if they're going to be so dishonest, and they are, look, if there's a reasonable ruling, we need to have a civilized society, and sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. But if they're just going to brazenly lie and say, oh, yeah, sure, James Madison ensured gay marriage in the Constitution, that's a joke. So if you're going to make a joke of your institution, I'm not going to treat you seriously. Agreed. Um, I think one side is playing, being, you know, keeping the white gloves on and playing civil and taking the higher ground, but the other side are, you know, fighting tooth and nail and ignoring all the rules and ignoring all the standards of civility, then the side that's fighting that way is going to win and we're going to continue to lose. So they've already crossed the Rubicon in terms of, you know, abandoning any sort of principles and civility and following a rules-based order of government and uh, all this. They, they, they are content to do everything it takes to advance their agenda, and we should do the same. And, if, and by not doing the same, we're enabling them because they're going to continue to run roughshod over us, and it's not going to change anything because, you know, they're, they're slowly changing the country. They're slowly turning everything against us. They've taken over the institutions. They've instigated the managed decline. You know, demographics are not working in our favor. So we have a lot of 
things that are pressing against us and time is not on our side. Uh, so we need to start getting bold and we need to start not just you know, fighting for the status quo. We need to start fighting for rollbacks. We need to push back their agenda. We need to roll it back. We need to reverse it. We can't just say the status quo is good and continue on with business as usual, which is basically the position of the establishment Republican Party. They're never trying to do any, any sort of bold vision of the future. They're never trying to enact any sort of a real policy agenda. They just want to, you know, maybe adjust, you know, tax rates on the margins and things like that. But that's not an agenda that's going to take this country back and pave the way for a national renewal. That's an agenda that's going to continue with our, our decline as a nation. Right. And again, to your point about fighting back, they just released Donald Trump's tax returns. All McCarthy and the other Republican leaders had to have done was go over to Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi and say, you release Trump's returns, we're going to be releasing your returns. And the whole thing would have ended. Right. I mean, I was recently interviewing somebody about Lehi, which was one of the two underground movements in Israel in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. We had Lehi, Irgun, and Haganah was the left-wing party. And Haganah actually killed several f- Irgun fighters. Menachem Begin ran the Irgun. Yep. He killed a, a few of them because he was very, he was, you know, a power freak leftist. And Lehi sent word to Haganah that if you ever kill any of ours, we'll be killing yours back. And right. sure enough, you know what? They never touched a Lehi fighter. They right. touched their gun fighters and never touched Lehi fighters. You have to let them know you mean business right. if you ever want them to stop. These are crazy people. But the, and the problem is, is that you know the party is not behind Trump, and I don't think Trump realizes it. I mean, a party that was truly loyal to Trump would have told them that. And uh, that sort of existed in the Bush era. The, the party was behind Bush, and you know you had the Brooks brother lawyers down in Florida, and they had a political machine, and they fought tooth and nail for Bush, and they pushed back against against the Dems behind the scenes when they needed to. And that sort of kept things in balance. But now that we've moved past those more, you know, historic and traditional Republican figures, the neocons, you know, whatever you want to name them, and you have Trump, uh, you have Trump as an individual and as a, you know, a, a personality that's totally not supported by his party. And I don't think he even realizes it. I think he's going to bat for Kevin McCarthy. Is Kevin McCarthy even endorsed him for re-election? I don't think so. Is he going to? I don't think so. So what is he getting out of this? He's getting himself involved with these fights and they're not fighting for him. And uh, this is this kind of political calculus that I'm hoping that he and his advisors can start to come to reality and come to grips with because they're making some really dumb, unforced errors. And it's a shame because I still think he is the best candidate we have to retake the presidency. And I think he would be in the best position to govern uh, with an America first agenda in mind. Uh, But he has to start getting serious and uh, fighting these inter-party and intra-party battles a little more efficiently and with a little bit more cunning because uh, I think he's getting pushed. I think he's basically getting taken advantage of and he's not getting anything in return. I think you brought up one good example of how they could have fought back against this tax return nonsense you know, pretty quickly, but they're just choosing to not exercise all the options available to them. And this is the uh, tired and old story of the Republican Party and its leadership. I wonder what your vision is for the future, because as you mentioned, our numbers are not great. I mean, even when we win, we barely win. And we shouldn't be barely winning when we're talking about drag queen hour and toppling statues of Abraham Lincoln. I mean, they're kind of like core issues. And yet, even when we win, we win by like 1%. So something's wrong. Well, they don't even talk about those issues. That's the problem. They don't talk about cultural issues. Those The establishment Republicans want to just govern in this sort of zombie Reaganism where they only talk about tax cuts and minor economic policies. And they want to avoid all the cultural and social issues that are really winning issues for us electorally. I think they're fundamentally important at 
from a civilizational standpoint, because this wokeism, this infection that has spread in the entire, you know, Western civilization is tearing it down from the inside. And that's why we should fundamentally oppose it, whether or not it's an electoral win or not. But it just so happens that these fights are also electoral wins for us. If you look at the popular opinion polling, you know, on transgenders and in, in, in girls sports, on the drag queen story hour, on the, the destruction or removal of American history. I mean, there is a actual silent majority still that supports us on those issues, but they don't, they can't find an electoral place to actually express that frustration because the Republican Party is so generally feckless and generally avoids these issues. So these winning issues, these issues that people would rally behind us for, where we still do have sizable majorities, uh, we ignore. Instead, we try to govern like this neoliberal party living in the 1980s, where all we can talk about is lowering the corporate tax cut. And, you know, we're totally out of sync. And we don't understand that the base of the Republican Party is no longer in the country clubs. It is no longer in the suburbs. There is a massive potential base of white working class voters in the Midwest, in the Northeast, in the South, in the West, you name it, who have not been fully tapped out. And if we were to tap them out to levels that Trump has reached and beyond what Trump reached, uh, we would have very strong governing majorities at the state and federal level uh, for at least the next generation, which would enable us hopefully to reverse some of the negative trends that you and myself uh, were alluding to. But we're not taking advantage of that. And even Trump was part of that problem. I mean, you know, he wasn't honing in on his on his core white working class base, many of whom have never voted before or rarely vote. That was the path that got him to win in 2016. Instead, they were trying to win the black vote on the margins, which is just from an electoral math perspective, a waste of time and energy. So I think there's a lot of you know failures the Republican Party have been making that have only exacerbated our generally sort of deteriorating situation from a political and demographic standpoint. But we're still in a position, if we got smart and we got our act together, to turn things around and start winning and create a sort of populist, emerging populist majority. But right now we're not seizing that because we're still stuck you know, several cycles behind. We're stuck a generation behind. We're dated in terms of our thinking. We're dated in terms of our messaging. We're dated in terms of our policy proposals. And I think we could create a broad, you know, working class coalition uh, in this country, but it's going to involve us actually honing in on that messaging and forgetting about the wine moms, forgetting about some of the suburbanites, forgetting about the country clubs and moving forward. And if we're willing to make that trade off, like the Dems have made, how, how like parties have historically made with various different realignments and party switch. If we're willing to do that, we'll be able to, you know, have a governing majority and start to roll things back and hopefully change the course of our country. But it seems, again, until we can fight, win these battles internally within the party and get a leadership that understands that, we are going to continue down this, this sad and uh, scary path. Tell us a teeny bit about you're the president of the young New York Young Republican Club. What is that? Tell us a little bit about it. The New York Young Republican Club is the oldest and largest uh, young Republican club in the country, probably one of the oldest and largest Republican clubs in the country, going back to 1856, the founding of the party. Uh, the current iteration is dated towards 1911. So we have over 110 years of history, over 1,200 dues-paying members. We are an ideologically very active club. We put ourselves on the right of the party, the MAGA, America First, populist sort of wing of things. And uh, it has done great work for us here in the city, being in the financial media capital of the country. It puts us in a very good 
strategic position to punch above our weight, even though electorally this may not be the most fertile ground for Republicans. We're able to use this position strategically and leverage it in order to create headlines, in order to set the narrative, in order to set the tone and tenor for the party and its future. And I think we're doing a good job at that. Uh, you know, we have a very robust speaker series with lots of great speakers, commentators, you know, people, thinkers on the right. We have great socials. We bring many conservatives in the metropolitan area together, creating parallel structures for them to network and, uh, you know, maintain their political ideology and, and create friend groups and things to work outside of the mainstream institutions and culture. We obviously do a lot of political activism, uh, door knocking, grassroots, you know, protesting, all that sort of stuff. We've helped get people elected into the city council, into the state legislature, into Congress. We've staffed those offices. So we're a pretty full-fledged uh, political institution, and we're looking to continue to grow that. And I think it also serves as a model for other areas of the country to build similar institutions that operate outside of the party apparatus that are independent, that can chart their own course while still advancing the overall agenda. And I think we've sort of mastered that in a sense. And we have our, you know, we have our beautiful quarter million dollar gala every year, five, six hundred people attend, great speakers. And uh, that's sort of the, the pinnacle of a, of a year's worth of programming and success. And we do all this as a volunteer organization entirely. So I think it's very impressive. And we're going to continue to grow and operate as such until uh, until God knows what happens. You're fairly young. You're not, you know, 80, 90 years old. You're, I think you're in your 20s or 30s. How did you become president of such an institution at such a young age? Well, the institution was sort of moribund uh, before I took it over. Uh, it had about 50 people. It was, you know, basically dead. They weren't doing anything. It was kind of left in the ash heap of history, so to speak. And uh, we sort of took it over in a sort of ideological coup back in 2019. How? And, uh, well, you know, they were kind of on the impression that they were just going to give it up. I don't think they realized where we were aligned, the previous administration. I don't think they understood fully where we were ideologically or what our plans for were for the club. So they were sort of organizing sort of a transition, just sort of get some new blood on. But we got on, we rewrote the bylaws, we kicked them all out, and we brought in all our new blood. And again, you just, you just, you have to be vicious. You have to be Machiavellian here. And we did that. And then once we were fully in power and fully in control uh, with a restructured organization from the top down, we governed it as we saw fit. And clearly the results worked because we moved from you know less than 50 members to over 1,200 members. We went from having maybe 10,000 in the bank to having like a quarter million dollar reserve at any given time. Plus, you know, being you know in terms of revenue, close to a 750 thousand dollar a year organization. Uh, we went to having no clubhouse to having a clubhouse for the first time in 60 years. We went from you know having no elected members to several elected members, from having no publicity to tons of publicity. So our social media followings, all, all the metrics, quantitative or otherwise, that you can measure by, we have grown leaps and bounds. And I think that happened because we were able to kind of on a micro level, what maybe Republicans can learn from, we seized the reins of power forcefully and quickly. And we instituted radical and complete change while we were in control. And now we're fully solidified in our position. So I think we could do the same thing at the federal level next time we have control of government, where we can wipe out the federal bureaucracy, replace it with people loyal to us and pass a very rigorous legislative agenda to get our uh, policy agenda in place as quickly and early as possible. Just overwhelm the left. That's what the left does with us. They overwhelm us with what they do once they're in power and even what they do in terms of their corruption. You know, if you have one item of corruption, it's very easy to go after. But if you're just pounding tons of corruption and other, you know, uh, ethical issues on top of one another, it's almost hard to just tackle the, the immense scale of what you're dealing with. And I think that shamelessness of the left has enabled them to kind of continue operating as they're operating. So I think we need to operate in a similar way in terms of how we uh, institute 
our policies if we're in government, whether it's at an institutional level like our club or at a governmental level like in Congress. But I think, you know, we took over an institution that was previously a very establishment rhino institution. Historically, this was the club of the Northeast establishment, the Rockefellers, the Javits, uh, the John Lindsay's, all these old American political figures that used to dominate the Republican Party before the conservative revolution that started with Goldwater and culminated with Reagan. They all had their start in this club. They all rose through the ranks. And we still respect that history and tradition because we are conservatives after all. We're not trying to build, you know, a whole totally new world in a in a sort of Robespierre way. So we respect that tradition, but we also are very proud of ourselves that we were able to turn this once glorious sort of establishment, uh, moderate Rockefeller institution into the new bastion of national conservatism and populism. And I think we should be doing that institutionally with other Republican organizations and other organizations and institutions in general. The left have implemented a sort of Fabian style strategy to take over, you know, the corporate boardrooms, the media, the academia, et cetera. Well, Republicans and conservatives should do the same and we should start small and work our way up. And I think that's a good path forward, wage a multi-front war, and that includes slow institutional takeovers. All right, that does it for us. I don't think I've announced actually on this program yet my new book, which was published around a month and a half ago. It's called Nuggets of Gold, Donald Trump on Marriage, War, Plastic Straws, and 330 Other Topics. It's a collection of over 600 quotes from 180 different speeches, rallies, press conferences, etc. And almost all of them are either witty or wise. And I think you'll like them. I was actually just interviewed about the book and related subjects the other night on WABC Radio on the other side of Midnight, which is hosted by Frank Morano. You could find that recording on my Facebook page. And you could find the book on Amazon. You also could find the book on my regular website, one versus 450.com. That's one vs 450.com. And you could find a lot of other good things there. And I hope you enjoyed the episode and I hope you have a wonderful weekend ahead. <laughs>